you will, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. But while you're turning there, I do want to brag real quick for just a moment. And this was a, I don't know who, I don't know who, I'm not bragging on myself. It was brought to my attention this past week that one of our members, and I don't, I don't want to point it out, she may not want me to tell this story, I don't know. But she stopped by a store in the community this week, and she asked the cashier, she said, how can I pray for you? And she said, you're the second person who's asked me, I, th I think she said today, but she said, there's a group of students who comes in here on a regular basis, and she said, they always ask me if they can pray for me. And she said, they go right down the church. She invited her to church, and she said, they go to the same church. They said, it's Pole Creek they go to. So I commend our students, whoever that was, I don't have a clue, but that's a wonderful thing uh, that we are, we are advancing the gospel out there. If you found your place, please stand for the reading of God's word and remain standing for a time of prayer following. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your written word. Lord, earlier in this book, you tell us to remain humble. So, Lord, I come humbly before you today, Lord, proclaiming your gospel. Lord, I pray that you'd speak through me and open hearts to receive your message. Lord, we recognize that we have an enemy who would love nothing more than to devour us. Lord, I pray that we can resist his ploys, Lord, through the study of Scripture, through prayer, and through accountability to one another. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. About two weeks ago, I was at Inca High School. And my son had basketball practice. It was already late in the evening. It was about 8.15. And I was sitting off by myself. I was actually listening to a podcast. And there was a break in the action or there was a substitution. I don't really know which. But one of my son's really good friends, Rylan Phillips, made his way over there to me. So it was just the two of us. I paused the podcast and I started talking with him. And we just made small talk. We were, I asked him how his Thanksgiving went, and we were just kind of chatting it up. And then it dawned on me. I said, I would love to hear the perspective of 11-year-old when it comes to what I should preach on. So I asked him, I said, Rylan, I said, what do you think I should preach on? I said, I preach in two weeks. What do you think I should preach on? And he said, me. And I said, well, you, what about you? And he said, well, I'm great. And I said, well, you are great. I said, but what makes you great? And he said, Jesus. And I said, that's right. I said, the fact that you have a relationship with Jesus is what makes you great. Well, then he piped up and he said, no, you should preach on John the Baptist. And I said, well, what about John the Baptist? He said, because he's great like me. And I said, well, he is great like you, but what makes him great? He said, well, it's because he baptized Jesus. And I said, that's true. I said, he did baptize Jesus. He is great. I said, he also lived out in the woods and ate bugs. And uh, he said, yeah. How long do you think me and Tanner could stay out in the woods with a gun and 80 bullets? <laughs> I said, probably an hour. <laughs> so anyway, I could see uh, after that whistle blew, he went on back to practice. I could see how that would play out. I could see the phone call now. Hey, will you come pick us up? I just dropped you off. No, I'll see you in a week. So anyway, that being, uh, that being said, today we're not going to talk about 
John the Baptist or Ryland Phillips, although they both are great. Today, we're going to focus on another great individual. Now, he's not great in the same sense, but he is great. Today, we're going to be taking a look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. And we may get to some other verses for context. If uh, time allows, we'll see. But before we begin, I want to mention that Peter commissioned this letter. Peter did not physically write this letter. One of his close confidants, one of his close associates, uh, Silvanus, wrote this letter. But Peter commissioned it. It's got a lot of great truth in it. And although we are skipping to the very end, I would encourage you at some point to read through this book. A lot of great truths. This book was intended to be passed around among the churches. So it certainly applies to us today. A wonderful, wonderful book. To start with this morning, I'm going to read a passage from a transcript. This is an actual radio broadcast from April 3rd, 1965. Some of you perhaps have heard this before. Some, some of you perhaps heard it when it was recorded live. And there are other versions floating around online. There are some versions floating around of this transcript online that have been modified ever so slightly. But this is the original, pod, uh, the original broadcast from 1965, April 3rd, 1965, by Bra uh, Paul Harvey. So I want you to listen to this. I want you to think about the words of this transcript that were written nearly 58 years ago. If I were the devil, if I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness. And I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population. But I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree, thee. So I'd set about however necessary to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve, do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what's bad is good and what's good is square. And to the old, I would teach to pray after me, our Father, which art in Washington. And then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions. Just let those run wild until before you knew it, you'd have to have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing. I'd have judges promoting pornography. Soon I could evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbols of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. 
If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who wanted until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious. And what do you bet I couldn't get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich? I would caution against extremes in hard work, in patriotism, in moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be, and thus I could undress you in public and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. Paul Harvey, good day. Now I tell you, after reading that, I don't know that it really is a good day. It's almost prophetic what Paul Harvey said nearly 60 years ago in that broadcast. We can go down the list of that broadcast word for word and see the evidences of what has transpired. 60 years removed from what he said and the evidence is all around us. Satan has a foothold on this nation and beyond. Now, I don't believe that anyone would argue the legitimacy of evil in our world today. We see it on a daily basis. Just last week, we saw someone or some individuals target uh, some substations in Mooresville that caused millions of dollars in damage, caused tens of thousands of people to be without power for nearly a week. And just a thing of evil. Just a few days after that, we saw a seven-year-old girl kidnapped from her driveway and brutally murdered by a FedEx driver. Things like that really leave us reeling. We, we read, I don't know how much of that story that you all have followed, but police found that little girl's body 10 miles from where she was first abducted, and they believe she was dead within an hour of being taken. Stuff like that just rips at our heart. Many of you have children in this room. We think about the, the horrors that that young lady endured. We think about that precious family who's having to live with the aftermath of this, the community and the friends of that family. And then what really hits home for us is we think about our own children, don't we? Many of you have children or grandchildren. I have a seven-year-old daughter. I could not imagine losing a child in that manner. Church, those are just two isolated events in the southeast. We would have no problem finding hundreds of other stories of evil in our nation and beyond, personal testimonies of things that have actually happened to you or just stories that we see in news outlets. Let's take a look at this text for a moment and see what Peter is trying to tell us. Be sober-minded, be alert. Be sober-minded. If you're like me, probably the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear that is alcohol. I mean, I think sober, I think sobriety, I think alcohol. For some of you, you may even think about drugs. Drugs and alcohol, I would say, are the two main things that come to my, our mind when we think about being sober-minded. That's likely what you think about. But I'll tell you, being sober-minded in the context that Peter's trying to talk to us about here is not about drugs and alcohol. Well, it's certainly a good thing that none of us are impaired today by those things that the world offers. What he is specifically referring to here is our mental and spiritual sobriety. Peter is telling us that it is vital to recognize when we are trying to, when, when the Satan is trying to attack us and trying to trip us up. Now, this means we need to live with a single-minded focus. This world creates a lot of allure. There are many things vying for our attention. Many things that want to get our focus off the main thing 
and derail us. We must live with eternity in view. We must be calm and collected. Now, although we are only looking at this one verse this morning, being sober-minded is actually mentioned three times throughout this book, through these five chapters. Now, I want to be perfectly clear. Being sober-minded is not someone who doesn't know how to have fun. It's not someone that's boring to be around. It's not someone who doesn't know how to laugh and cut up. It's not someone who's unapproachable. I don't want to be like that. I love to laugh and cut up. I love to have a good time. I love to have fun. I want to be approachable. I don't want to live an unapproachable lifestyle. Being sober-minded is not somebody who walks around like this. Life's good. Life's great. I'm sober-minded. I've got eternity in focus. You all know the type. Somebody that's just so miserable to be around. That's not what being sober-minded is referring to. Being sober-minded simply means focusing on the things that actually matter. We begin to focus more on the grace and mercy of Christ. By the way, did you know that none of us are more or less deserving than the grace and mercy that Christ offers? By being sober-minded, we are focused on eternity. That means we celebrate the things that have eternal value. We don't celebrate the brand new house, nice fancy house, the nice new car, the new job in the same way that we celebrate things that have eternal value. But how many times do we do that? How much time and effort do we spend and energy do we devote to things that really don't matter? And I'm not talking about your job and your responsibilities. Of course you're going to do those things. Of course you're going to go take trips with your family. Of course you're going to do some of that. But what I'm talking about here is not... It's focusing on these things that have no eternal value all the time and them, them getting all of our attention and all of our effort and all of our energy. I think we do that a lot. Then Peter says to be alert. Some versions say instead to be watchful. I believe it's the New King James and the King James Version actually say to be vigilant. To be vigilant. When I think about that, I think of a watchman. I visibly think of a watchman who has the responsibility. A watchman could be someone who's a prison guard, and they have the responsibility to make sure no inmates escape. A watchman could be a security guard. He has got a responsibility. Maybe he, he's in an area that's prone to being, uh, things are prone to being stolen, and he's got a responsibility to make sure that those items are secure. I even think of air traffic controllers. I did not know until the first service when I preached on this, that we actually had an air traffic controller here. But I can tell you right now that I want someone like that in my life who is alert. Think about the chaos and the confusion and the problems that can arise if the people in the professions I just mentioned are not alert. A lot of inmates are going to escape. A lot of companies and businesses are going to lose money and time, valuable time. And I couldn't even begin to imagine flying into Atlanta airport and not having an air traffic controller or having one who's preoccupied with something else. One of the busiest thoroughfares in the world. Is there a show of hands that anyone who would like to fly into the Atlanta airport and the air traffic controller's taking a break on his phone, not watching those monitors? I don't see any hands. He, but of course, Rylan Phillips would raise his hand. Same one who says he can stay out outside in the woods for a week. Yep, we believe that, Rylan and Tanner. 
Even as believers, we have a tendency to lose our focus from time to time, don't we? We can become so task-oriented, we can uh, focus so much on our present sufferings and problems that we forget our primary goal. If we aren't watchful, we can allow our emotions to control us. This is simply part of our human nature. So Peter makes sure to point out how important it is for us to stay alert. If we are not alert, if we are not paying attention, then we will be easily overcome, which pushes us to the main part of this verse. If we are to remain sober-minded and alert, then what are we to remain sober-minded and alert from? Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. That's strong language. That's strong language. The first thing we need to see is that we indeed have an adversary. We have an adversary. We have a legitimate enemy, and we need to be perfectly clear. He is a great enemy. At the beginning of service, we talked about two individuals, a young man in this church, and John the Baptist in the Bible, who are great. They are great. We also have an enemy who's great. Now, I mentioned he's not great in the same sense, but he is a great enemy. You know, this enemy that we have, he's more powerful than you are. He's more cunning than you are. Sometimes I think he even knows us better than we know ourselves. Now please understand me on something. The devil is a genuine enemy. There are many people who don't believe in a real devil. There are many people who believe that Satan is just a symbol of evil. That he's not really a true, real being that comes to destroy. And as a matter of fact, we're not going to look at this in much depth, but there are statistics out there that show that more than half, more than half of the Bible-believing, evangelical, born-again Christian church, over half of them either strongly agree that the devil is not real or they don't know. Ladies and gentlemen, we can't fight an enemy that we don't know exists. D.L. Moody, who was a great pastor and teacher, he once said this. He said, I know the devil exists for two reasons. One, the Bible says so, and two, I've had dealings with him. The devil is your adversary. The devil means to slander. Devil is used 35 times throughout Scripture, and an again, another 54 times he is referred to as Satan. Many other times he's referred to by other names as well. The Lord obviously thought it was important for us to know about this adversary. Satan was originally Lucifer. He was an angel of light. And once he rebelled, he was cast out of heaven. Jesus actually references this according to the Gospel of Luke when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Since then, Satan has been roaming around causing havoc and creating problems. Peter says that Satan is like a prowling lion looking for anyone that he can devour. Now let's think about a lion for just a second and how they seek their prey. Now first of all, I don't know how many of you all are aware, lions are massive animals. Lions weigh anywhere from 265 pounds to 550 pounds. Exceptionally strong. These cats can leap up to 36 feet in a single bound. They are truly incredible animals. But perhaps the most interesting thing about them is their ability to hunt. They're agile. And even though lions do most of their hunting during the day, they have exceptional night vision. They see six times better than their prey at night, 
which allows them to, to hunt at night if they choose to. They have excellent hunting uh, night vision. They have specific hunting tactics in which they will intentionally drive an animal they are targeting to a designated place. In other words, they will work from the outside in, so to speak, in order to get their prey to come into the middle so that the lions can attack together. So how does Satan prey on us? First of all, sin is very appealing, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest. We're in church. We can be honest. Sin is fun, isn't it? Sin's very appealing. If it wasn't, we wouldn't struggle with it. Okay? Sin is appealing. Now, I want to show you a clip for just a moment. Many of you have probably seen this, or you've certainly at least seen the movie. But I want to play a clip for you uh, from the movie, The Passion of the Christ. Watch this. Man and back. Yellow. That was a clip from The Passion of the Christ, and that is every instance of Satan appearing in that movie. How many of y'all have seen that movie? Great movie. You need, to, you need to check it out if you haven't. Mel Gibson directed that movie, and in an interview, he was asked, what is up with Satan in that movie? What is up with that creepy baby? Why did you portray Satan the way that you did? This is Mel Gibson's response. Listen to this. I believe the devil is real, but I don't believe he shows up too often with horns and smoke and a forked tail. The devil is smarter than that. Evil is alluring, attractive. It looks almost normal, almost good, but not quite. That's what I tried to do with the devil in this film. The actress's face is symmetric, beautiful in a certain sense, but not completely. For example, we shaved her eyebrows. Then we shot her in almost slow motion so you don't see her blink. That's not normal. We dubbed in a man's voice in Gethsemane, even though the part was played by a woman. 
That's what evil is about. Taking something that's good and twisting it a little bit. About the baby, Gibson said this. It's distorting what's good. What is more tender and beautiful than a mother and a child? So the devil takes that and distorts it a little bit. Instead of a normal mother and child, you have an androgynous figure holding a 40-year-old baby with hair on its back. It's weird. It's shocking. It's almost too much. Just like Jesus in the movie when they were scourging him on his back and they turned him over to continue scourging him on his stomach. It's almost too much. But that's the exact scene in the movie in which Satan makes an appearance with the devil or with the baby. That's exactly how Satan works. That's exactly how he attacks. Satan is actively studying you. Now, Satan is not omnipresent in the same way that God is, but he enlists the help of others who fell with him. He studies and observes you. He puts in so much effort and energy and enlists that help from so many of his associates that he has influence that extends to every single facet of life. He gets very familiar with you and your habits. He becomes familiar with you. He becomes quite well acquainted with each one of you. Now, each and every one of you have a sin nature. I have a sin nature. Satan will study that sin nature and he will use it to form a battle plan against you. And when he does, he's going to make it look very appealing. Sin sure does look good until you see the fullness of it. Sin is very attractive until you see it from every angle, until you see the lives that it touches and the damage that it does. And don't be so prideful to think that you're above falling victim to Satan and his schemes either. Each of us as believers have a spiritual gift. And some of you in here, I want to touch on this for just a minute. Some of you in here, have, you have the spiritual gift of discernment. But I want to be very clear, the spiritual gift of discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. Because as believers, every single one of us should have that level of discernment. We should be able to see and identify when something is wrong. Having the spiritual gift of discernment means you know the difference between right and almost right. Now there are a few things I didn't mention about lions a little while ago. Now, first of all, when it comes to hunting, they are extremely patient. They don't get in a big hurry. They take their time. And they also have different hunting tactics depending on the animal they're hunting. Now, often their prey is faster than them, so they must be patient and wait for the most opportune time to attack. The strategy they use will often depend on whether or not they eat that day. For smaller animals, they will likely hunt straight on. They'll stalk that prey until that prey is close enough to attack. But for larger prey, they will surround them. And they'll create chaos and panic within that herd until that herd disperses and separates. And then, as a pack, they can attack that weakest animal. Here's the point Satan's very patient, he's not in any hurry. He's going to lie in wait. He may have a different hunting strategy for you that he does for me. However, it's a lot easier when he gets us isolated and we don't have any support. If we allow chaos to separate us from the pack, it's more likely that the lion, Satan, will be more successful in his hunt. This shows us the importance of being involved. Not just being present. We can be present, by the way, and not be involved. We can be present and still be isolated from the Christian wall. We must be present, we must be involved, and we must hold each other accountable. 
Now we've heard how Satan is a real, genuine threat and how he would love nothing more than to devour us and at the very least take us out of the fight so that we are doing nothing to promote and advance the kingdom of God. But there's also some great news. We talked briefly about maintaining a kingdom focus and we talked briefly about that kingdom focus being on the grace and the mercy that God has shown us and I really want to elaborate on that for just a moment. Do you realize how much grace and mercy you have been shown when it comes to defeating advances from Satan? Listen to what Charles Spurgeon had to say about this. When I read this, honestly, my mind was blown because I've never thought about it like this. Charles Spurgeon said this, One of the greatest mercies God grants is not permitting our inclinations and opportunities to meet. Have we not sometimes noticed that when we have had the inclination to sin, there has been no opportunity? And when the opportunity has presented itself, we have had no inclination toward it. Think about that for just a minute. Think about times in your life when you've had the desire to sin and you've had no opportunity. And then other times when you've had the opportunity to sin but have not had the desire. That is grace and mercy that God is showing us to defeat advances from Satan that otherwise we wouldn't have been able to resist on our own. Satan is crafty and he would love nothing more than for your inclination of sin and your opportunity to do so to meet at the perfect time. But what grace and mercy God has shown us to not allow those circumstances to meet all the time. Lastly, there's another reason that we can defeat Satan's schemes. You see, there are actually two lions. You say, hang on a second, two lions? Everyone in here has seen the movie The Lion King before, right? Everybody's seen it. Now, there are several main character lions in that movie. But two of the main character lions are Scar and Mufasa. They're brothers. Now, and I'm not at all suggesting that Jesus and Satan are brothers. They are not. I'm making a point. Scar in the movie, if you remember, he's malicious. He's evil. He's mischievous. He's cunning. He wants nothing more than to usurp the the authority of Mufasa, to rule the pride land on his own, and to rule it with darkness and authority. He's just an evil individual. But guess what? He's not the stronger of the two lions. Listen to this. A couple of times throughout Scripture, Jesus is referred to as the Lion of Judah. Now, like Satan, this does not mean that Christ is a physical lion. What this means and what this is referring to is that Jesus is a conqueror. Jesus has conquered sin. He has conquered death. And he's conquered evil. He is the victorious king who is our deliverer. Today, I hope that you know Christ as your Savior. And for those of you who do, I hope that you are equipped to deal with Satan's advances through prayer, through study, through accountability with one another. In just a moment, we're going to have our invitational song. I want to give you a little bit of hope right here. In the song that we're going to sing, one of the lyrics toward the end say, No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. We have hope that even though Satan would love nothing more than to devour us, as believers, the only thing he can do truly is thwart us. He can get us on the sideline. He can make us to where we're not as effective, but he can never own us. We're already owned. 
We're already bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now that doesn't mean Satan won't advance. It doesn't mean he won't attack. He loves nothing more than to see believers come to church and sit in church and go about their life and carry on as if nothing happened. He doesn't have to get involved there. You've done all the work for him. So for you students, this was not a point of mine, but for you students who are going around and you are inviting people to church and you're asking them uh, to pray for them, continue to do that. Continue to have that boldness. Continue to reach out to those in your community, into your school. And for you older ones, and, and myself as well, what a, what a testimony. Am I doing what I need to be doing? We are bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let us pray.